0: last week uh, we started a new series. I, uh, I've been very moved by what I sense right now in our, in our nation, in our community. Series of realities, events, circumstances, the opioid deaths, uh, the, the mass shootings, the suicide of, of some of our students, our kids, that their entire life is in front of them. We talked about some of those things last week and how the world has reached a new level of of hopelessness. And really, there's a lot of people, if you could just break through the veneer and get past, you know, the denial, who would be honest and say, I feel hopeless, Uh, Today we're going to go beyond just the acknowledgement, we're going to do that as well, but we're going to really drill down today on some specific ways to overcome uh, the circumstances that lead to a hopeless heart. Uh, We're going to talk about famine, the reality of famine, times of famine. We're going to talk about seed planting and ultimately gathering and how that brings hope. Uh, I I think it's always good to start by just calling things by what they are and deal with the hard, cold facts. Uh, Hopelessness, we talked about this last week. It it exists, but we're gonna acknowledge it for a different reason today, a different view, a different angle to help you understand the solution to hopelessness. and and please don't don 't write this off just because right now you 're holding it together right now don 't blow this off and say this i don 't need this i 'm not one of those people. The, the first thing you need to understand about a hopeless heart is that it is all all something that happens to everyone i um, I think sometimes we fail to realize everyone is just in a different season of their life at different times and and everyone will experience this reality Uh, and and so I in your notes I put this idea here and I want to introduce this a hopeless reality there will always be seasons of famine and I refer to Joseph's story Uh, Joseph was a major patriarch historical figure in the Bible Uh, Abraham had a son uh, named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had numerous sons, one of them being Joseph. And and today, we're going to just real quick get a snapshot here to to establish this reality of famine by looking at a passage in uh, Genesis chapter 41. Uh, It says in this story, Joseph who you know, had faced more than his share of hopelessness, who, who had been cast off by his own family. His brothers became jealous of him, threw him in a pit. He was taken as a captive, held as a slave, accused falsely of doing something he didn't do. Wouldn't you agree those are pretty solid reasons to feel hopeless? And, and in prison, God spoke to his heart and revealed some things to him uh, and, and here's the passage that, that brings forth this truth that God reveals. He says there will be a seven year seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land and this is the prophecy but it is, it's not just prophetic in the context of that moment but it, it is much bigger than that there's, there's two really powerful lessons here. One is that it says very specifically it's going to be so bad that people are going to forget the times when it was good. And that's what happens when we become hopeless is we, we forget that there, there have been good times and we forget that good times can come again. But, but the, the, the really thing I want you to see here today is this. That uh, after times of... Prosperity. There are often times of famine, and so if you're not in a season of plenty now, maybe you're in a season of a famine, a lean time, a time without prosperity. Then I want to encourage you and let you know that that life is cyclical. There are seasons, and there are times. And some of you are thinking, oh, "I'd like this season of famine to be gone because it's been for a long time." But I, I want to impress upon you today that. This is God revealing this to Joseph. And so there's a takeaway lesson here, and that is this God always knows what's coming. We, we may not, but God always has a solution. I want you to look uh, back to your notes, if you would. This is, by way of introduction, it helps us frame what we're going to talk about in the way of very specific things to understand in order to overcome hopelessness. God's solution. God revealed this reality of a famine to Joseph so that Joseph could prepare. And Joseph prepared for the famine by planting and gathering. During the times of plenty, uh, God inspired Joseph to prepare for what was coming. And that's always God's solution. All of us, please do hear me when I say this? God wants us to be prepared for the future and he's the one who holds the future in his hands and he knows what's coming and God wants to get you ready for it if you'll let him. The story continues in Genesis chapter 41. It goes on to say, as predicted, for seven years the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields and the cities. Uh, there, there is a solution to the periods of, of famine in our life. They're real. Uh, God already has a solution. We're supposed to plant seeds, gather the harvest, and, and, and hope. Hope always emerges from a time of, of harvest, from a time of sowing and a time of reaping. So I want to break this down in three very simple ideas to help you today understand how you can get ready for the famines that are coming in your life. Number one, r- write this down because this is probably the most important point. If you don't get beyond this, really number two and three aren't going to make any sense to you at all. False famine expectations. I, I, I wish in the notes I'd have put those three words. Uh, if I'd have, I wish I'd have put parentheses around them because they fit together in a phrase or an idea or a thought. False famine expectations are the basis for a hopeless heart. I want to propose to you today that the vast majority of of hopeless moments are directly tied to false expectations. We we are having a a false famine expectation meltdown. Let let me explain. The world tells us that we need stuff to be happy. I mean, that's just uh, Madison Avenue marketing cranks it out that this is what you need to be happy and we could use anything but we'll use a phone for an example you got to have this new phone it's being advertised and and there's a great deal of peer pressure you have friends who have it and and we add to that that there's a popular worldview that that our government exists to not just provide us an opportunity for pursuing happiness but the government exists to guarantee equality and happiness when that's, that's not what our Constitution promises. And it's certainly not what's best for us. God has called upon us, all of us, to work and labor and toil and, and to be productive in life. Uh, when you listen to this popular worldview, we deserve it. Uh, we're entitled to this. We're entitled to prosperity, not pursuit of happiness. We're entitled to, to, to happiness. The result is you've created this profile of a false view of the world. And you don't understand what the real world is like and how that famine is a reality. We we forget that people have thrived and survived throughout thousands of years of history without a phone and they've been perfectly happy. The things we, we view as problems in America, truthfully, they're truly stunning when you compare them to the rest of the world, billions of people. Uh, We we even have come up with this idea that to compare our problems with the world's problems, we, we refer to ours as first world problems, and what the rest of the world is facing would be that third world problem. And our problem is, in a first world problem scenario, we're propped up and told that life's gonna be easy, and then we have the carpet yanked out from from under us use the, whatever metaphor fits in or the ladder kicked out or you know the wheels fall off the bus you slip on a banana peel whatever it is and something bad happens but you didn't think it would because bad things are not supposed to you you're entitled to happiness and and you say yeah, this is, sounds you know a little bit familiar and and the shock of that sets in And from the shock, we get angry, and we go to this angry place, and and we end up with confusion and disillusionment. And and what we're doing on college campuses is creating safe spaces for people to go to because they feel so threatened by ideas that conflict with what they've been programmed and brainwashed to believe. This This is big stuff, you guys. I'm trying to help you understand from my heart to yours, the vast majority of people I talk to who tell me how bad their life is, most of it's false expectations of what life is supposed to be, that it's supposed to be easy. They don't understand the reality of famine. And I'm not asking you to be fatalistic, you know, and, and you know, the, guy, the fatalistic theologian who was Calvinistic who fell down the steps, you know, just a whole flight of steps, get ups, gets up, dusts himself off. I believe it was supposed to happen because he's a Calvinist and he's fatalistic and he brushes himself off and says, I'm glad that's over. It was meant to be. So I'm not asking you to go there, but I, I am wanting you to understand that your expectations have a lot to do with your happiness. The, the truth is, According to scripture, life is hard. There is spiritual warfare going on. There are all kinds of problems to overcome. And and I I hope you will understand today maybe a little bit better how that false famine expectations are the real basis for the majority of of hopelessness. Now, sidebar for a moment, and I I want to stand up because here, get up on the chair if it would help you hear this better. That would be fun to watch, but we won't do that. But hear me when I say this. I'm saying the majority of of all hopelessness. I'm not saying all of it. There are organic reasons. There are hormonal reasons. There are medical reasons why people experience a hopeless heart. You follow me? Please hear me say this, because I am not not reigning judgment on those who have organic issues that, and for those you need medical help or uh, the, the help of a Christian psychiatrist those are real things and those do exist so, but they're a small percentage of what we now have over medicated our culture with because they don't think they should be unhappy for a single moment when, when the truth is life is hard there are, there are all kinds of challenges out there. there. There are bad things that happen to good people. I mean, all the time there are bad things that happen to good people. And those things, those realities are, are a part of our existence. They're a part of what that makes living. I mean, the pain sometimes is, is what makes it possible for us to experience this world and, and really whether you realize it or not, how would you know anything about God's grace unless you went through a hard time, a difficult time, and you came out on the other side knowing that God's grace was sufficient and it was enough to get you through the challenge and whatever it is and the burden of the moment. And so I I encourage you, I encourage you today to know that when bad things happen, and they will, Every one of us will have bad things happen in our life. Please know and understand that those bad things are just a part of life. Don't buy into this idea that it's always going to be peaches and cream. So I don't want to beat this up anymore, but, but I do want us to really grab a hold of this and to know this and, and, and to grab onto this and to leave here today knowing that if you have a false famine expectation, you're, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of hurt and pain and, and sorrow in life. You're going you're to be always constantly disappointed in life. Now, I'm going to say something today that I used to hate. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because I think it will be helpful. Um, when I was uh, under 40, now I know it's going to be surprising to some of you now to find out I am older than 40, but I am. And, and so when I was under 40, I used to hate to hear somebody, especially older than me, who would tell me how hard it used to be back in the old days. And in fact, it was nauseating. I'd look away from him, put my finger down my throat, Ugh. Come on, I've had enough of this. I'm sick and tired of hearing how tough the old days were and how easy I have it. I, you know, frankly, millennials, you guys got nothing on the garbage we boomers took because we were considered soft and undisciplined and just out to have a big time and party. And and, and frankly, we gotta own a lot of the fact that a lot of the mess we've gotten our country in has been brought on by my generation, the boomers. But I used to just hate it. Because I couldn't stand people telling me all the great things. In fact, my kids even have a little code where if I'm talking too much about the old days or some historical stuff that they could care less about, they kind of code me and and they kind of talk me off the cliff. But the reason I mention that today is this. There are some things we can learn by listening to people who lived in different times. The truth is, our economy is doing so well now. We have such small unemployment that, that our, I mean, everybody doesn't have a new iPhone 10, but the truth is our country is experiencing one of the greatest periods of prosperity in the history of the world, and uh, we, we are, I think, being exposed to more false expectations. We, we've even got a name for this. We call them, you know, first word problems first world problems versus third world problems. Let me give you an example. The first world problem, this actually happened to me this morning. I walked in, I looked in my closet, and uh, I was trying to w- decide what pair of shoes to wear. I had five pairs of shoes. That doesn't include uh, the tennis shoes, the running shoes. And, and I, I looked down and I said, well, I'll take that pair of black. I had three black ones. I picked one of them. Do, do you understand? My dilemma, what pair of shoes to wear, is a first world problem. A third world problem is you have one pair of shoes and they were stolen last night by someone else who didn't have shoes. And you get up in the morning wondering what you're going to do. That's, that's a third world problem. A first world problem is it's lunchtime and you're trying to decide where to go to eat. Do I go to Chick-fil-A or... Uh, do I want to go to Pizza Hut today? I love the crust at Pizza Hut, or, or do I want to go to Subway? My, you know, John, Jarvis, and James, those guys, you know, they, they do pretty good sandwiches. Subway. So I'm thinking, do I want to go see my friends and hang out with them? Do I want to go to Subway? And so I, I'm having a real dilemma here. What do I do? Where do I, where do I go for lunch? In fact, frankly, a couple of the biggest fights Kathy and I have ever had sound like this. Where, where do you want to go to eat tonight? I don't know. I want to go where you want to go. Well, where do you want to go? I don't care. I want to make you happy. I want to go where you want to go. And, and that, that goes from zero to 60 in about 15 seconds. And we are scratching each other's eyes out, and it all started over this first world problem. Where do we grab a bite to eat? You know, that's a first world problem. Would you agree? False? Third world problem? I got nothing to eat today, and I just hope tomorrow I can get some food to feed my kids. You realize a lot of the world goes to bed hungry at night? One more uh, little piece here. I, uh, you know, I was thinking about this first world, third world thing, and I, I was coming back. Uh, I've flown a lot of miles in my life, and I've done a lot of it by way of Delta. How many have flown, flown Delta before? Okay, everything goes through Atlanta, right? Uh, I literally mil- over a million miles but closer to two million miles and, and in fact I'm so programmed for, to get from here to there you got to go through Atlanta I know when the rapture comes all of you guys are going straight to heaven I got to go through Atlanta okay? <laughs> and then I'll join you but I, I had taken an early morning flight I got into Atlanta I was waiting for my, my connection flight back home here to Akron and I it's just habit I always look on the plane and and I'm trying to talk to the Lord Lord what you know maybe there's somebody I'm supposed to talk to about you and and but I I'm human and I sometimes look and I think there's somebody I really kind of hope I don't sit next to maybe because you know there are going to be some challenges there and I and I I think these are good things you know they they pre-board with the Families that have kids that need help, that's a cool thing. I think we need to honor family with younger kids. They pre-board with military. I love that active military gets on the plane first. They should, uh, but then wheelchairs come, and I always look, and, you know, my heart's moved as I see different things in different people and the challenges that they're facing, and one of the people in the, in the wheelchair brigade was a, a woman that had two dogs in her lap. Okay. I don't know if you guys can throw that one up there for me. And I, I saw this woman. Uh, I I saw her and I, I looked at her and I thought, golly jeepers, I hope I don't have to sit next to her because <laughs> I just know those dogs are going to smell. Now these are service dogs, and I'm big even for the you know what a comfort dog to someone who's struggling? If it's legit. I have no problem with that animal being on the airplane, okay? So you're with me. I'm not being unsympathetic to that. It's just I kind of went in my head someplace, and I thought, I don't want to sit next to her. I just kind of feel like those two of them, not one, two. Those little critters are going to smell really bad, and I don't want to get dog hair on me, you know? Sure enough, got on the plane. Guess where I sat? <laughs> right right next to this woman. And when I sit down, I, I'm sitting here whining, and I really am. I'm whining like a little baby in my head, okay, not me, but in my head, doing a little of that. And I, I remember sitting there, and, and again, I'm human, just like we all are. And it hit me, first of all, as I sit down, is I was right, these dogs really do stink. But then it hit me here's a woman who I don't know who's obviously got a physical disability. I hadn't talked to her one word yet. And it's like the Holy Spirit whispered to my heart, Ed, you big baby, you know, why? why? I'm sitting there going, why me, Lord? All hundred seats on this plane, I gotta sit next to these stinky dogs. And it hit me, why not me? Why somebody else? And so I said, well, Lord, maybe I'm supposed to sit there and, and talk to her. And we started talking. And we talked the entire flight. It went in about five minutes. And I found out this is a, a, a woman who's gone through more hardship than any of us can comprehend. And, and I, I realized that she, when she moves somewhere, she chooses where she lives based on how close it's going to be to a church. She's a woman of faith. A courageous woman. and And, and I... I sit next to her and I listen to her and and frankly, I I had to believe not many people were talking to her because once she started, she wouldn't shut up. (laughs) Just go, 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 go. But as I got off the plane, I thought, you know, I'm talking tomorrow about first world, third world problems and it hit me. I I did that trip yesterday. Most of my miles are going someplace to preach or speak and it hit me. You know, there, there are Christians right now in Syria whose homes have been burnt down whose possessions have been stolen you know Islamic terrorists have driven them from their home they're walking carrying everything they own in backpacks and in carts and they're making their way to little places where they can just get away from the daily moment by moment terror that is facing them because they are Christians. And, and here, here's Ed, you know, first world problem. He's worried about a stinky dog for a 500 mile trip. When I have brothers and sisters around the world who don't know where their next meal's coming and that trip isn't gonna take them an hour and 15 minutes, it's gonna take them weeks. That, that, that's a real world problem there. And, and, and the, the part I want to get across today is this, listen, we need to be aware that this is not an equitable and fair world. We talk a lot about justice, and I think believers should speak up for justice. But, but would you log away in your hearts today, leave here today, and know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that, that you are going to face difficult moments of famine in your life. It's not always going to be peaches and cream. It's not always going to be good. They're going to be difficult, difficult times and God is going to allow you to sit next, frankly, to some stinky dogs. And you better get your head screwed on right because if you're buying into the world's view and philosophy, if you believe the falsehoods that are being taught and they're being taught in pop psychology, they're being taught in our government schools. In fact, let me give you another verse here from Leviticus here. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 14. Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core. They did not save you from exile. Instead, they painted false pictures filling you with, what's that word, those two words there? Filling you with what? False hope. What happens when you have false hope or a false expectation that you don't deserve an injustice and therefore if something bad happens to you, you just dig a hole, crawl in, and pull the dirt on top of you? Let me show you the contrast of the hope, the kind of hope that want, God wants to give you, true hope. Write, write this down. It's in your notes. The hope of God's people results in happiness. In, in other words, false expectations. There's not going to be any problems. God gives hope to help you go through the problems and help you be content even in the midst of a problem. Here's the next scripture. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 28. Would you look at this verse? The hopes of the godly result in happiness, but the expectations of the wicked come to nothing. If you have hope in Christ, that's where your hope is, you can be certain that you will be at peace and have happiness. So this is the first lesson about hopelessness. Here's the next two Very brief. Number two, seed planting is God's plan to grow our hope and faith. We all need to grow our faith. We all need to grow hope. And and I'm here to tell you today that is possible. You've got to start with the right kind of expectation. But God has a plan for growing your faith. So go ahead and write that down. Seed planting is God's plan to grow our hope and our faith. Let me show you the next verse here. Here's our next verse. Luke chapter 13, verse 19. Jesus said this talking about faith. It is like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree and the birds make nests in its branches. So you don't have to have a lot of faith, but, but how do you deal with a hopeless heart? You acknowledge, first of all, that bad things happen. Bad things even happen to good people. There are very good people here today who've experienced incredibly traumatic, awful experiences. There have been real famine moments. And the sun, as we said last week, it shines on the righteous and unrighteous. It rains on the righteous and unrighteous. And and here we are today, good people here who are in seasons of famine. What do you do? You plant a seed of faith. This is God's plan. Start with a a little seed of faith and plant that seed and allow God to grow that. It doesn't take much. Just begin with this. God, okay, I believe you're real. I believe you're there. I trust you. Help me today to get through this one day. Just like any seed, for it to, to grow and germinate and, and grow into a great tree of faith, it, it has to receive water and, and it has to have nutrients in the soil and it, it has to have the warmth of the sun and the light of day and, and and all of that is found in something that I don't know if you realize it or not, but our relationship with Christ and our prayer life. In fact, go ahead and write this down. Prayer is the basis for growing our faith and hope. You're never gonna grow your faith and your hope unless you allow God time to work in your heart, and that happens through a personal devotional moment. It doesn't come from just once a week getting a little fix at church. So if you ever hope to grow... Spiritually, If you ever desire to grow hope within you, or if you've ever felt like you're losing the hope that you have, you need to give yourself to times of prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse number one, a great verse that uh, Jesus is again teaching us. He says, then Jesus used this story to teach his followers that they should always pray and never lose what? what's that word? Hope. Always pray. Prayer is the, 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 what fertilizes the seed of faith and helps it to grow. So no matter what you're facing, time with God, int- intimacy with him will allow you to grow in faith. Prayer and not losing hope go together. That, that's the key to, to planting a seed and watching it grow. That's our second lesson. The third lesson, number three, a gathering lifestyle of faith will prepare you with hope for the future. So write, write the key word there, gathering. A gathering lifestyle of faith will prepare you f- with hope for the future. This is really the missing ingredient for a lot of people. A lot of people say, okay, number one, I'll accept times of famine come. I don't have unrealistic expectations. In fact, some people take that to the extreme and do become fatalistic. Yep. It's, it's bad. I knew it was going to be bad. I'm not asking you to go there. Just be a realist. Bad things happen. Some people buy into that. Some people say, okay, I'll even carve out a little time for prayer and Bible reading. I'll come to church. I'll worship. That's all good. But there's a third element to planting the seed, and that's the gathering. That's the service. That's the labor. God has called us to serve and work in his harvest field. Let me give you a scripture for that. Proverbs 6, 8. They labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. When you gather from the seed you've planted, you're preparing for the future. And I believe with all of my heart that you can build up reserve, hope reserves in your heart if you will give yourself to something that, that really, frankly, maybe 35% of you are involved in now. Maybe 40, maybe 50, maybe there's more that I don't know about. But most of us are are just absolutely inherently selfish and when we hear the word service, it sounds like serve us. (laughs) Yeah, bring it on, serve us, serve us. But the truth is God's called us to service and the way your faith and your hope really matures and really grows and, and creates for you a harvest of hope, so that you will be prepared for the next time of famine. You gotta lay this stuff up for the next time of famine. You gotta lay up thankfulness and, and seeds of hope. You gotta labor hard to do that. And, and this is not easy, it's it's tireless work, it's harder than you ever imagined. Life is hard. You gotta work hard. My grandparents who survived the, the depression, they knew that. Laboring, working hard. And that's where the next thought is, and I'd like you to write that down. Hope that is strong will lead you where you need to go. You grow your hope by laboring, by getting involved in serving others, by being a part of a ministry team. You say, Ad, okay, you got me here. I'm, I'm not really involved in service. What do I do? Go to abt316.info. Let us know you want to be a part of a ministry team. We would love to have you grow your hope through your service, through cultivating the seed of faith. Really, that, feed is, that seed is not real unless it germinates and grows and bears fruit. And the fruit is the service that God wants us to be involved with. I, I've watched this in people who, who, who cross over from just being spectators to a part of, a ministry team and serving. Hope that strong will lead you to go where you need to go. Now, there's a, there's a final key to this here. If there is a God, and, and there is, and if God has a plan for your life, and he does, and, and if that plan involves overcoming hopelessness, hopelessness because of circumstances, sometimes self-induced problems, sometimes circumstances beyond your control, I want to assure you today that a life surrendered to God, intimate relationship with God through Christ will take you places right now you can't imagine where you would never have gone any other time. There's a final verse here. Let me wrap it up with this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for your soul. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, to us, we might hear that, what is this talking about, an inner sanctuary, what does it mean? To to the Hebrew reader, the the first century Christian, the book of Hebrews, frankly, was written to Jewish people, Hebrews people. It's God's inspired word, and it's preserved for us today. But the, the first generation Christian who read this, ah, inner sanctuary, I know what that is. And unless someone's explained that to you, unless you've read your Bible all the way through, you may not know what that means. But in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the inner sanctuary. There was a curtain. And and he alone would go in there once a year and put a blood sacrifice on the altar. And that blood sacrifice was a temporary symbol for all the people. That an innocent lamb had been slain and the blood was on the altar. And it was a symbol of the, the fact that one day Jesus was gonna come. And he would die on the cross and shed his blood for us. And the really cool thing that happens, we're coming up on Easter and at the resurrection of Christ. When Christ died on the the cross, the Bible says that that curtain that kept everybody else out, only the high priest could go in and make that sacrifice. Only he could enter into the inner sanctuary and, and be literally in the presence of God and the Shekinah glory of God. The Bible says something amazing happened. You may have not seen this before, but the Bible says that that practice of only one person once a year was done away with, that that curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. If it had been a man, it had been ripped from the bottom up. But God ripped the curtain, opened it up, and what this verse is telling all Hebrew first century Christians is now they can go into the inner sanctuary, into the very presence of God. They don't have to go through a priest. That's why we don't pray through a priest. We all have the privilege of prayer and intimacy with God. And here it is. I'm going to close with this. If you will go into that inner sanctuary through intimate, personal relationship with Christ, you will find that in that inner sanctuary there is hope. Because in Christ there is hope that overcomes any burden, it outlasts any famine, it will help you over, overcome any injustice or any hurt. And by God's grace today, we, who are his followers, all have that privilege. And I hope you'll join me in going there every day of our life. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you for listening today. We hope your heart was inspired. For more information or directions, visit us at abt316.com.